When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are diving deep into what we call Rule One Investing, what some people call it value investing. It's not really value investing. I like the term value investing. Value investing connotes a, you know, a, a very low PE ratio. But know, I think the reason you don't like it is because you have that connotation, because you started doing it back when like that was more the description well, of it but and, and, i think now people yeah. think of it as like buffett munger investing uh fair enough although and buffett and munger both use the term from time to time and then also you know walk away from the term from time to time and say that true. all investing is value investing true is anything true. that's not is not investing true kind of thing <laughs> and but it, if you consider value investing just buying super cheap stocks you're right as long as you don't put any other definitions on what cheap means. If Google's cheap, you can buy Google. Yeah. If Apple's cheap, you can buy Apple. That's yeah. typically not what people mean by value investing. They mean more like Ben Graham kind of cigar butts and things that are just, you know, five PE ratio or something. But we will take it all in under value investing. And we're we're here just diving into this thing. We've been doing this for a long time. And it feels like we are coming toward the edge, I think. We're sort of laughing at my terrible crystal ball, which has been telling me from looking at fundamentals of the economy and fundamentals of the market price uh, relative to the to the earnings of companies that we have got to be at the edge of this market massively changing, right? And it just hasn't happened. And I remember last time we were talking about Keynes basically saying the market can be, uh, the market can stay irrational longer than you have money. Hmm. And you know, so having at least we're not betting against the market um, and shorting the market. Haven't done that, but we are sitting outside the market and um, I'm just looking at our portfolios. We get it's sort of ironic how it goes by sitting in cash. Of course, you dramatically change your overall portfolio rate of return because cash earns zero, essentially. Yes, and so we've got. And I'm thinking back in the old, old days when Buffett first started going, um, he basically had stocks that were like we're buying in the public market. And he had um, kind of what he called work workouts, which were sort of merger acquisition opportunities. They were sort of what we would kind of consider our options portfolio. You're, you're taking risk, but you're doing it in a very you know, uh, highly favorable way where your probability of success are very high. Mm -hmm. And you do a bunch of them. You do a bunch of those kinds of things to, to generate cash flow when the stock market itself isn't going anywhere. Um, and we've been doing a lot of that the last few years. And then Buffett has one more of the three things that he was doing back in, let's say, 1960. The, the third one, we don't do, but we're thinking about doing it. And that is what he called controls. 
which are businesses that he would get in and actually control. He, he would be able to split that business up or change management, uh, redirect cash. So Berkshire Hathaway, for example, is, a, is the example of a company that was a control company for Buffett after a while. It, became, it was started off as a regular general stock investment, and then as it did worse and worse, he, he got more and more in control of it. Hmm. And uh, began using the cash flow very differently than what the management team would have done with it. The yeah. management team was busy pouring it back into buying new equipment and trying to stay relevant as a textile company back when everything was shifting to China or to Europe or to Latin America. And, and um, they couldn't compete on price. And so Buffett just saw the company as wasting the money, just pouring it back in, and that he could take that same cash flow and just keep using the equipment and having it not be as efficient and just sort of wear it out um, without replacing it and take that cash flow and go and do great things with it as an investor. And that's the beginning of Berkshire, how it became what it is today. So it started as a what he would call a general. Yeah, but I mean, he did that because it was a mistake. He wasn't. Yeah, he didn't buy that company intending to control it. No, he didn't. So, but he he did buy some companies. I'm a little confused by this characterization of like he purchased it and then chose to use the cash flow differently. Like, no, he purchased it intending for it to be an amazing textile mill that was going to make him tons of money. And then realized he had messed up because textiles were not making good money. And yeah. he kept it going essentially for the employees for a number of years and then just couldn't keep it up anymore. Yep. And and it began, <clears throat> he really did kind of begin the process right there of taking the cash flow away from buying capital expenditures and put it into investments. Yeah, well, rather than shut it down. Yeah, I think what you're saying. But (laughs) we're getting a little like we we've we ended talking about the market and um and whether or not it was gonna like be permanently changed. And so now we're moving away from that into No, not really. I just sort of as an aside, because I was thinking about we were also talking about the portfolio returns and yeah. Just looking at it, think, you know, don't take these numbers to be, you know, audited by any means, just ballpark at the end of the year. Looked like our stock portfolio was up about 31% last year, which is in a market that's up, you know, the Dow is up 18 and, and the S&P is up 25. So it's not like, you know, a massive home run. But Okay, so let me good. just put this in, in context because last time we started out saying, um, okay, your return was, I can't remember what it was. Like 13 or something, 12 okay. and a half, 13 overall. And then you wanted to talk about what that was all about and like why... Um, maybe that means value investing doesn't work, which I thought was fascinating. And so that's what we've been talking about. And so so the reason you're saying, okay, so my stocks, like the stuff you actually own, actually did way higher than the 13%. Yeah. But... And the rest of it was... Was cash. Okay. (laughs) Huge pile of cash. (laughs) So if you're 50% in cash and you do 31%, you're at 15%, right? Mm-hmm. So we were, um, uh, and then we had, so we, that was kind of what happened over the course of the year. They, the stock portfolio was the, the smaller amount of capital was in the stock portfolio. And then we used some of the cash to try to create some of this, what, what Buffett would call um, workouts we did with options. And we, in one portfolio, we had about 11% return with options, but we just didn't do very many of them. We were too nervous. 
about mm. where this market was going. We didn't want to have bad bets. Mm-hmm. Um, so we made 11% in in a, like in that case, like a $20 million portfolio that was just oriented toward options trading. And, and um, you know, it it did okay, but it, what 11%, it would have done so much better if we'd actually used the whole 20, right? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> well, <laughs> And our stock investing would have done so much better if we'd actually used all of the... <laughs> Cash. But that's but what hedging didn't. is. Hedging is you take a temporary loss for a, a better gain down the line. And I and I think actually in, in our defense, the and I guess my point is that rule one investing. I just want to be clear when you say our, because you're saying us and our a lot. It's not me. It's, that's true, but I got it's guys you and your team. Got, got, yeah, me and my team. And and the point is we take very seriously the the absolute rule of rule one investing which is rule number one, which is focus on not losing money. And in the long run, you'll come out wealthy. If you don't lose money, you're going to come out wealthy. I mean, think about how people become millionaires. If they just put money in consistently into the stock market over a 50-year period of time, starting when they're 20 and going to 70, and just do it, no matter what, just do it like a like a, an automaton. And you will you almost can't help becoming a multimillionaire right it's just <laughs> right you don't I know don't, no, i don't you don't agree with that oh yeah the numbers are I don't the know numbers if that's... don't lie i mean if okay. you put away gosh if you put away 150 bucks a month starting when you're 20 just for round numbers and you just keep you just keep doing that and you just put it into the stock market. You don't think about it. You don't try to do anything special. You just buy SPY, right? So you're just going to get the stock market returns plus dividends. That's it. That's all you're going to get for the whole 50-year investing career. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to think about it. You don't have to know anything. You just have to be disciplined and put the money away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of Dave Ramsey 101, right? Or Susie Orman 101, right? You just do it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And if you do that and the market gets the return it's gotten historically, which, you know, is, you know, with dividends and everything's around 7%, 5, 5% just on the stock market and then another couple of points for dividends, 7%, you're going to have a couple million dollars when you retire. Yeah, you know, that's the kind of thing like people say, and I'm sure it works for some people, but it, timing matters. And there's an awful lot of people who ended up retiring in the middle of a giant crash. Well, that's true. And, and also, if you spend it, your first so 20 years So this thing of like, well, the average was 7%. I mean, great. That doesn't help well, of course you're <laughs> the right. person who retired, right? You know? Yeah. At, and like, or like for some reason had to cash out or... Whatever, like life is messy. Life isn't averages in the stock market. So I I struggle when people say things like, like, I get what you're saying. And I'm not like, yes, in theory, 
yes, the math works out. But reality is is just not theory. Well, and I so don't that's think why you're nailing the reality part right. Although I agree with you, in reality, well, the reality of it is, is over a fifty year period of time, historically at least, right? I mean, who knows where the market's going in the next fifty years? But let's just say, over the last fifty years, historically. If you'd put away $150 a month for those 50-year periods of time, you would absolutely be a multimillionaire. And yeah. the part Again, that you're saying that's not real. Well, we just have to look at look at it historically and, and ask what what would have made that difficult to do? And the answer isn't that the market stays flat for 20 years. Because the market did stay flat for 20 years during that 50-year period of time. Mm-hmm. It absolutely went nowhere from 1970 to 1983 and again from 2000 to 2005. And I mean, there's big chunks of time where the market went absolutely nowhere. So that's not what's going to prevent you from becoming a multimillionaire. What's going to prevent you from becoming a multimillionaire is the lack of discipline to put away $150 a month when your children need clothing or schooling or health care or you need a vacation, or you want a TV set, or you want to live a life and not just yeah. be this penniless person. I agree, but the assumption here in this scenario is that you have done that. You're a person who's done that. Yeah, if you got that kind I'm of saying discipline, you'll be a millionaire. You've done that, and still, <laughs> I don't think it's possible to be certain that the market's going to cooperate with your timing. I don't think you can find a period of time when it wouldn't have worked. Honestly. Okay. Well, that's I think an interesting you, you could thing explore to look back that. At. Yeah. I mean, the worst time I think you could you could try to play with would be like, okay, you're starting. I mean, you have to pick a year and start. And the thing that makes it work is this very unrealistic iron discipline. I, I think that's the biggest flaw in the whole concept is that, yeah, you put in your money in 1927, 1928, 1929. Oops. And now you have 26 years when the market, for the market to come back to where it was in 1929. That surely would put a big dent in your retirement. And the answer is no, it wouldn't. Not if the next year you put $150 a month into the market as it's headed for a 90% drop. And then you just kept doing it right through the depression, 150 bucks a month, 150 bucks a month. But you can see the flaw in that is just, you can drive a truck through it. First off, you have to stay employed. Yeah. Right. But when when the yeah. market, when 20 percent of the people in the country are unemployed, second, a lot of people who were not unemployed, like my my grandfather, your great grandfather, were working part time. And mm-hmm. just barely making ends meet. I mean, your your great grandfather um, and great grandmother built brick houses in Oregon on property that they borrowed. <laughs> I mean, they went and borrowed land borrowed lumber and borrowed labor and built houses in the depression in Oregon and then sold them for no, no down payment and, and pay, pay monthly. Hmm. And they kept food on the table and they were actually able to feed a bunch of people who were doing construction and they got land moved that people couldn't sell to anybody. And they got lumber used that the lumber yards couldn't do anything with. You know, they just figured out how to do it. But seriously, during all that time, are they also putting away $150 a month? I don't think so. Yeah, no. They would not be doing that. No. So there's the flaw. And Well, I'll and give you another grandparent. So hmm. grandma, mom's mom, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they put money away every month, but they probably did because that's they the kind of people did. they yeah. were. But the yeah. government, because she was a teacher, public school teacher, the government was putting money away every month for her. Right. And um, and in the dot-com crash, she had the money in the market and the dot-com crash, I think it was that one or it was the other one, um, she panicked and sold and lost like half of her savings. Mm-hmm. It must have been dot com. And then she money. didn't put it back in. Yeah, no, because she was scared at that point. Right. Right. And she didn't know how much longer she was going to live. And she didn't right. know if she would need money for medical expenses and all the real life stuff where you go like, hold on, if this market goes right. down again, I think it it's going to be way the, worse. I think it cra- the 1987 crash or maybe it's 1991. It wasn't 2000. She, she'd done that was well it? before. Then. I just remember her talking about it. So I was old enough to talk to her it, about, which I is why I think maybe it was the dot com one. But no, because it was... It was like you were not around. Like it was well after you guys got divorced. Oh, she was she was already terrified of the stock market by the nineties. But I remember she told her financial advisor to sell. Take it all out. And I think he was telling her I can't remember if he told her to do it or to not do it, but there was like some conflict. And um and yeah, and then it just, you know, it went yeah. back up and she lost she just lost that money. That yeah, was, I mean, and, that was and we're not very talking hard. about a small amount of money. I think we're talking about a pretty significant six figures that should have turned into millions of dollars had she actually invested it. So there's yeah, the, there's so, the catch. So this what I'm saying is, like, in you. real life, at some point, we all need to take our money out of the market. Yeah. Unless you just leave life. it in and your heirs and your heirs get it, and that's another way to go. Yeah. But. Most people take money out of the market. And that's why there are And you aren't have that to decide when that is. Right. And you have to do that with no hindsight. <laughs> right. No <laughs> Knowing hindsight. whether or not the world's about to blow up or not. And right. that's really hard to do. And that's so a, sh- financial advisors experience this all the time with their clients. And it's one of the reasons that they anchor their practices so much in in the idea of just massive diversification. Yeah. Because this idea that you can somehow know when to pull it out and when to put it back, their experience with their clients is they, the emotions overwhelm them, right? I mean, you have everyone wants their money in the market and then everyone doesn't want their money in the market. And it's very hard for an individual who isn't really experienced in it and has an education in investing to go against the crowd Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that feeling that you shouldn't be in the market is so intense. And then once you've been badly burned in, and people have were badly burned in 2000, they were badly burned in 2007 and eight, right? Yeah. Once you've been bad and the next one is coming. Well, as and sure like, as God made little green apples, the next big burning is coming. Yeah. And just to like, you know, particular to her, like she lived through the depression. She remembered that oh, incredibly yeah. well. She knew things could get a lot worse. Yeah. And I think that was her thought process. I'll just take what I have, even though it's half, and I won't, it won't get worse. You are making the world's greatest case for learning rule one investing that I've ever heard. No kidding. No kidding. Because somehow (laughs) I wish that I had known this stuff at that. I mean, she did it without talking to me, of course, but I wish that I had known that stuff, this stuff at that time. Because, you know, things would have gone differently. Well, look at, look at how wonderful so it is. So we won't make those mistakes going forward, and that's no, the good I mean, thing. And 
And looking at last year, right? Again, just kind of coming back to that. I'm not having a, an emotional crisis for having a portfolio that's down 50%, right? Yeah, yeah. And if my portfolio was down 50%, almost certainly it would be about half of what I'm actually managing that's down 50%. And the other the other chunk is sitting in cash waiting to get invested. And that that does so much for the emotions to be able to say, yeah, you know, I held on to those companies and they're down 50%, right? I held on to, I don't know, pick one, you know, let's use the old Chipotle example. So you, <laughs> you, you got Chipotle. Coca-Cola. And, let's use Coca-Cola. Yeah, I mean, you buy Chipotle at, and you're, you're Bill Ackman and you buy Chipotle at 400 and it goes to, uh, to, to 240. There you go. That's the real world. Mm-hmm. Bought it at 400 thinking it's pretty really on sale and it mm-hmm. goes to 240. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so now, are you distressed? Oh, here's Charlie Munger. Recently, just bought Alibaba last year. Mm-hmm. Right? He bought it at two twenty, and it went to one hundred and ten. It literally mm-hmm. got cut in half in the last quarter of the year. And so, here's Charlie, super distressed. Oh my gosh, I maybe I've made a mistake. No, nope. he, he doubled his position. <laughs> he went out and bought <laughs> another three hundred thousand shares, and so that. The the emotional safety of learning how to invest this way is maybe the the biggest benefit. I mean, 100%. maybe. I mean, even if all you did was do the same rate of return as somebody that's just sitting in the market, man, I would so much rather be proactive and know why I've got my money and the things I've got it in um, than to just sit there thinking, dear God, like your grandmother, please. I, I just can't take the emotional strain of thinking maybe we're entering the Great Depression. Absolutely. And I don't know anything about investing. And I have to take the money out. And, then and I have to survive and pay my bills. Yeah. I have to like survive and pay my stuff. bills. And, and yeah, I know inflation's eating up the cash, but I don't know what else to do with it. And, and I mean, I'm, you know, not going to be around in 10 years anyway, so I might as well take right, it. <laughs> right. How great is it that Buffett has taught us this stuff that gives us the emotional stability to deal with the, the economic crises that are going to happen in your life several times. You're going to have several of these kind of economic crises and you either, you either just keep your head in the sand and keep putting that $150 a month in there, right? And pray you're not Germany in 1920 or yeah. Zimbabwe or something. You just You just hope you're not... On a downward slope, right? You're betting on the long-term viability of the country. All right, you do that. That's one choice. And that that is a very, very common choice with, with financial advisors who just try to talk their pa- their, client, their patients. They're trying to talk their patients <laughs> off the wall. Trying to talk their clients down, right, from the ledge when the market's going down like a brick. And, and they're doing it for obvious reasons, two reasons, right? They, they truly believe that the best way to invest is just keep investing and keep staying in there. And also it's quite a lot better on their pocketbook if their clients don't pull their money out and stop paying them for the service. So they have, you know, they've got a bit of a conflict of interest for encouraging you to stay with it. Yeah. Because they're getting paid to do when, you, when that happens. But that aside, it's not bad advice for somebody that is just absolutely doesn't know what's going on. Your grandmother would have been massively better off on hindsight. And your mom would. 
right? I mean, yeah, she, definitely. She much more. I have to ask which which way it went. I have to ask mom that because I don't remember which if it which was, time it crashed. No, no, no. If it was um, that the financial advisor wanted her to keep the money in and she didn't, or if it was the other way around. It might have been it. Yeah, it might. I think it I was. I think it yeah, might have been that the financial I think guy it was a did. Long time ago. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll try yeah. to find out the right. the story. Very cool. Um, but I think, like, in addition to the emotional stability while owning the investments, it also contributes tremendously, like knowing what to do about these companies contributes tremendously to the idea um, that we all need to sell at some point for that retirement. Unless, again, unless you're just somebody who keeps it all in there for your um, heirs. But getting to that point where you're going, okay, I'm maybe going to live 10 more years. Like I'd like to do X, Y, and Z with this money or make sure that I have enough for medical expenses or whatever. You can Mm -hmm. make informed choices, feeling like you have power over your own life instead of feeling like you're being tossed around by market forces. Right. It's just a huge difference. It's just huge. Right. I mean, it it doesn't mean you guys that a storm can't come that's so big your boat can't handle it. No. No matter what boat you're in, right? There can be a storm of that dimension, but that's not likely. And so you've got to you got to go with the odds on best way to go for you. And if the odds on best way to go for you is that you don't you're not interested in learning this stuff, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, so presumably that's not you. Um if you're not interested in doing it or your you know family isn't then your your best shot is just keep putting the money in there if you and be disciplined. That's that's what you got, and that can help you get through the emotional crises. Is you're going to be putting money in when the market is horrible and people are running for their lives. If you can do that, that's great. But most people can't. Or maybe you ride this market because it's not changing and it's going to keep going up right. for the you next ten years. For the next ten years. Well, I'll tell you what. So Let's that's do this. where we're going to leave it. Here's an experiment we can talk about next time. Let's raise interest rates on the 10-year T-bill to 6% and see yeah. how all these rational prices do. Yeah. That would be a fun experiment. I put a lot of money on that one. I, I would, would too. Put, if you can give me advance notice <laughs> we're going to 6%, then I will do some of my first major shorts in the market. Great. With millions of dollars. I would do that in a heartbeat. But uh, yeah, so much for rational. In my view. Anyway, that's it for this one. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Time to go play. See ya. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it's really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.